Well, good evening and welcome. So glad you're here tonight. How you doing tonight? You can be seated. That wasn't very convincing, but I'll take it. <laughs> Those of you that are joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. And a couple of things before we get started. The first of which is we are going to celebrate communion at the conclusion of the Bible study tonight. So um, if you haven't already, you can, uh, oh, and they're in the back. That's right. I thought they were back up front, but I guess they're still in the back. So you can get the elements at this time. Those of you online you might want to get them ready if you want to partake with us. And uh, while you're doing that, I want to let you know that uh, Tuesday, this upcoming Tuesday, February 6th, 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary is our prayer meeting. And we're going to look at how God not only answers <laughs> short three-word prayers, and aren't you glad, but He does so during those times, particularly when we're in a trial. But also He sometimes may deem it necessary to allow that trial to protect us from a much greater trial. So that is going to be Tuesday night. I'm going to just share briefly famous last words, and then afterwards share just a personal prayer update concerning my wife. And then we'll have our pastors come up. We'll have staff. What? Oh. Oh. Damn, I see how it is. I'm not worthy. Wow. Thank you, Mike, by the way. Thank you for thinking of me. Wow. I guess you'll be partaking of communion tonight, and I'll just watch. <laughs> Thank you so much. That would have been just terrible. Get to the end, and I'm looking down here, and there's no elements. Wow. I will not take that personally. All right. So I'm um, going to have the pastors come up, and then they'll uh, share uh, and have specific prayer. And then for specific needs, we'll also have uh, staff come up, particularly for the children's ministry, Chris Ito. I hope she knows that. Is, is she here? She left the building because of this, I think. Um, then time permitting, we're uh, actually hoping to open it up to all church intercessory prayer for the many prayer requests that people have sent to us and asked us to pray. Um, also, lastly, Teresa's Celebration of Life will be here at the church Saturday, and it will begin at 10.55 a.m., and then it will be followed by the graveside service, which will be at Mililani Mortuary at 2.30 p.m. Um, I've asked for, and really we do covet your prayers for a couple of reasons, one of which is just the number of people that are going to be in attendance. Uh, and we just really see this as an opportunity to get Jesus to those people that will be in attendance that would not have otherwise you know, heard the gospel, let alone darken the door of a church. So this is a, a profound privilege and opportunity for us. We are going to live stream it 
Uh, it'll be available uh, on our social media platforms, not the website, no need. Uh, this is actually to facilitate the numbers of people who, because once we reach capacity, we cannot, uh, you know, allow more people to come in because we'll be in violation of, of the fire code and we're law-abiding uh, citizens most of the time, <laughs> except in 2020. But um, so. Anyway, that's this Saturday. Uh, we would encourage you, though, to, if you uh, don't come, if you want to watch it, you can online. But more importantly, please, please, will you pray for us? Pray for me and uh, pray for the staff, the many volunteers. It's going to be all hands on deck and uh, very involved and very intense, might I add, for what I think might be deemed obvious reasons. So thank you for that. Ezekiel chapter 39 tonight. So um, why don't we pray? I know Capono prayed, but is there such a thing as praying too much? So let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, we're just we're so grateful to you for this place that we can come to on a Thursday night and just put aside all of the busyness of our stressful lives and focus our attention on you and your word and just our time together in worship and fellowship. Lord, would you bless tonight? Bless our communion celebration at the end of the Bible study tonight. Lord, that's why we're here tonight, because we want to not only ask for your blessing, but be a blessing to you. We want to bless you, Lord. We want to praise you. We want to thank you. And now we want to hear from you as you speak in that still small voice of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, will you do that? Thank you. We're asking you in Jesus' name. Amen and Amen. All right. So as many of you already know, Ezekiel 38 and 39 are usually taught together. And for good reason. I mean, it is a well-known prophecy. They kind of go together because they're basically about the same prophetic event. I did make the decision to do a two-part teaching, though, through these chapters. And I've titled this Bible Prophecy That's Now Happening. And this is going to be part two tonight. And for the benefit of those who aren't familiar with Ezekiel chapter 38 and this well-known prophecy, that's okay. If Bible prophecy is new to you, uh, it is one of the most well-known prophecies in all of the Bible concerning an alliance of nations that will attack Israel from the north. And they will do so to take the wealth and the prosperity that Israel at the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy has accumulated. Now, because last week was chapter 38, I'll do my best tonight to fill in the blanks, which is going to be kind of an easy do, because 
chapter 39 is sort of a continuation and even with more details about this specific prophecy that, by the way, is happening right now. We're on the verge of witnessing the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And this because many believe it will either happen right before the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, or simultaneously with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, or right after the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The point? <laughs> the rapture is going to happen very soon, because everything is perfectly lined up. And this is my preface before we jump in. And I, I beseech you <laughs> to hear what I'm going to say, because like with last week in chapter 38, there is nothing within the details of this prophecy that would allow for this not being fulfilled now. We addressed those last week. We'll do that again this week. Not as much, but still there's a couple of issues we got to work through, because they have been misunderstood, and as such they become barriers or hindrances that in effect delay the potential for the fulfillment of this prophecy. Don't do that because everything is already ready. That's not very good English sentence structure, is it? It's, it's ready already. Is that better? <laughs> already. There's nothing that has to happen before this prophecy happens. There was one thing that had to happen before this prophecy could happen, and that was the rebirth miraculously, of the nation of Israel. And that happened on May 14, 1948, which by the way was the prophecy in chapter 37. So what comes after 37? I know deeply profound, chapter 38. So if 37 was for the most part fulfilled, there are some partial fulfillments in chapter 37, chief of which is the birth of the nation of Israel. Because you cannot have Ezekiel 38 with an alliance of nations invading Israel, if Israel is not there to invade. I hope you got that, because that was the best I got. So that was the only thing standing in the way of the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38. Israel had to be back in their land, rebirthed as a nation. And that happened. So check that box off. Now there were a few others that Bible teachers were basically saying, well, this isn't quite in line yet. Um, if it is Russia, many believe it is. I'm not dismissing it, nor am I demanding it. But Five years ago even, you did not have Russia, Iran, Turkey, uh, all of the other nations. You did not have them in line, in place at that time. 
And fast forward even five years from now, it does not stand to reason that these nations will still be as fast as everything is moving geopolitically. I mean, just the, the odds of all of these nations being at the ready in Syria, north of Israel, just waiting for the green light to fulfill this prophecy. I've been teaching Bible prophecy for many years, decades now actually. And for those of you who remember, I've taught Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the other prophecies with it in our weekly Bible prophecy updates for many years. And it wasn't only until recently that I was able to stand behind this pulpit, as is my privilege, and say, basically, we've got some more boxes to check off. I mean, this is this is it. Everything's in place. Well, yeah, but they still got walls. We talked about that last week. Check that box off. Well, but Israel's supposed to be dwelling in, in security and safe, safely, safety. Check that box off. It means confidently, and Israel is very confident right now. Well, Israel has to not only be back in the land, but they have to be very prosperous. Check. So we went through every single one of them, checked every box. And so we're going to check off, I think, a couple more tonight. There's one in particular when we hit verse 9, but that would be a spoiler alert. So we're just going to wait till we get to verse 9. So you ready? All right, verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, now this is going to be a reiteration of what we saw in chapter 38. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, or the chief prince, head, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And verse 2, I will, I will, hang on to those words, two words, I will. I think I counted 11 times in this chapter where God declares through the prophet Ezekiel, I will. Who? Me. I will. I will. I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow, hang on to that, out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. I want to just real quickly draw your attention to this word boat, because in the original language of the Hebrew, it carries with it the idea of missiles. Now hang on to that, because the, the description that we have here of the weaponry would seem primitive by most standards, but this is as we're going to see, describing very advanced weaponry. Okay, now verse 4. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have 
spoken, says the Lord, and I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security, confidently, even arrogantly, in the coastlands. By the way, parenthetically, let me say, you cannot impose America on that reference. It, it doesn't work. That ball does not bounce, okay? You'll forgive the metaphor if you have a better one. Just use that one. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. We're going to talk about that in a moment. So, verse 7, I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Now listen to verse 8, Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord. This is the day of which I have spoken. Translated, it's a done deal. Bible prophecy is history in advance. God said it, that settles it. Uh, this is the day of which I have spoken. Uh, surely it is coming. By the way, this is a spoiler alert. The prophecy update this Sunday is titled, Why Judgment Day is Coming. Not Judgment Day is Coming. No, why? Why the day of God's judgment, the day of which He has spoken of through the prophets and the prophecies throughout Scripture. Why that day of judgment is coming sooner than any could possibly even begin to imagine. So that's Sunday. You'll have to wait till then. Was that too much information? Okay. So what God is declaring here is, this is already a done deal. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, I realize that I am saying it's a done deal 2,600 plus years before it's a done deal, but it's still a done deal. What's the point? The point is, it will happen. It is coming. It shall be done. In other words, this is going to happen. And I believe it's going to happen at any time now, because everything, every box has been checked, and everything is lined up perfectly and precisely as God said it would at the time of the end, on the day of which he had spoken. Verse 9. Here we go. Hang on. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. Wait, oh, seven years. 
Now this is where we need to talk about this, okay? Don't get too excited yet. So clearly there are those who hold to the belief that this would mean that this has got to happen before the rapture, because Israel is going to have to burn these weapons and use them for fuel for seven years. So that must be the seven years during the seven year tribulation, except there's, there's a couple of problems with that, because at the three and a half year mark they flee to Petra in modern day Jordan, where for the last three and a half years God protects them from the Antichrist who is seeking to devour and destroy them. So you have many prophecies, one of which, chief of which actually is Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, as we affectionately refer to it, where Jesus describes in detail how they're to pray, the Jews, on this day that their flight, that when they flee Jerusalem, when the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about in chapter 9, verse 27, when that takes place and they realize that this is not their Christ, this is a false Christ. In other words, they're going to come to a realization that the Christ they thought was the Christ is the Antichrist, and that will be the catalyst to bring them to the true Christ their true Savior, their true Messiah. And when they do that, they're going to flee Jerusalem. And Jesus says, pray it's not on the Sabbath, because transportation shuts down. Pray that you're not pregnant, or with a pregnant wife, because travel is again impeded and hindered and much more difficult. <laughs> so pray that it's not, when this happens, it's not at that time for you, or in the winter. Pray that it's not in the winter, because for those of you that have been to Israel with us, certain months of the year, which we never did again, by the way, because it's really cold, and it snows sometimes. And I don't like snow. I lived in snow for way too many years, and I shoveled a lot of snow for a lifetime. <laughs> anyway, enough of my problems. Thank you, God. Here am I, send me to Oahu. <laughs> and he did. So, but when it snows in a, particularly Jerusalem, which it does not usually snow, everything shuts down. Because there's snow. What are we going to, we don't have snow tires here. So we can't go. And, and pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Because, you know, you can't, if it's a Shabbat elevator, you're going to be standing there a lot till Sunday, basically. Well, actually sundown on Saturday night when the Sabbath is over, because there's no elevators, Shabbat elevators. So the Gentiles have to use the non-Shabbat elevators. Remember that? And you push the button, nothing happens. Oh, it's the Shabbat elevator. Oh, I guess, I guess the Gentiles go over here. You can use this elevator, you heathens. Anyway, sorry, that, that was unnecessary, maybe. So let's get back to this seven years. So that's a problem, because what are they going to do? Take the weapons that they burned for seven years to Petra for the last three and a half years? That doesn't really make 
sense. And then you've also got the issue of Israel at this point, during the seven year tribulation, uh, being the epicenter for just unspeakable horror, particularly in Jerusalem, particularly the focal point of the Temple Mount. Because understand now, the temple in which the Antichrist commits the abomination that causes desolation has been rebuilt. It's believed that it will be rebuilt early on. And by the way, that isn't easy to do. You can check that box off too. Because in order for the Antichrist to commit the abomination of desolation in the Holy of Holies, there has to be a rebuilt temple with the Holy of Holies. By the way, chapter 40 next week, Lord willing, and if we're still here, if Ezekiel 38 and the rapture hasn't happened yet, then uh, we're going to, for the last eight chapters from chapter 40 on through the end of the book in chapter 48, have a very detailed description of the temple during the millennium, the kingdom age, that 1,000 year rule and reign on earth in its pre-fallen state. And it is going, it, now, <laughs> That's next week. So already I got you Sunday, Tuesday, and then next Thursday. So you're going to have to wait. Um, okay, so, so now we, we've got this issue here, because this is going to be, talk about a hot spot. And by the way, if this is as devastating as Ezekiel is describing, and it is, and God Himself is going to set on fire and deal a decisive blow to this alliance of nations. Some believe, as we've discussed prior, that this will take place in its entirety within a span of about 24 hours. This is a one day deal. And God is going to intervene and interrupt and defeat this alliance of nations, not for Israel, really despite Israel, more for His namesake, for His glory, as we'll read later. So back to our seven years. I have, um, I tried, believe me, I did everything I possibly could to make this mention of Israel burning the weapons, using them for fuel for the seven years of the seven year tribulation. I actually did pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty impressed with how far I got. But after going into the original, I discovered that it doesn't technically read this way. Let me explain. And they will make fires with them for seven years. In the original, you don't have they will make fires. It reads more like this. The fuel could provide fire for seven years. That's how voluminous it is. Now this is going to comport with what we're about to read, because it's going to take them months just to deal with the aftermath of this massive army, 
with these massive weapons and the massive bodies, and I'm sorry for the graphic nature of it, but it's going to get pretty graphic anyway, the carcasses, the massive carcasses from the defeat of this horde, this army, this great horde that comes against Israel to invade Israel. So what do we do with the seven years? I think we just leave it alone. I mean, first of all, we don't need it. I mean, it's not like a, a proof text. We've got plenty <laughs> passages and prophecies in Scripture concerning the seven-year tribulation. We don't need this obscure and even ambiguous mention in one verse in Ezekiel chapter 39. We don't need to impose upon the text the seven-year tribulation. I mean, think about it. You cannot extract three words out of one verse and build a case for it being the seven-year tribulation. It just, again, I tried. <laughs> I'll save you the time. It won't work. And it doesn't need to. We don't need it. Is that okay? So can you just let it go? Okay. I had to. I don't know if I have completely, because it looks like I haven't, because I'm still talking about it. I still want it to be, but I don't need it to be. So, okay. All right. Verse 10. Wow, that was rough. They will not take wood from the field, nor cut down any from the forest, because they will make fires with the weapons, and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord. I love that. that. That's God. That's God. Again, He's not doing it for Israel. He's doing it for Himself, for His namesake, for His glory. Verse 11, it will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers, because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore they will call it the valley of Hamon Gog. Before we read verse 12, because we got another seven here, which again is the number of completion, notice the multitude, the volume, the massive amount of bodies that will need to be buried, so much so that God has to designate a burial place and even name it. And because there's going to be so many bodies, in fact, that it will obstruct anyone who wants to travel that route. They won't be able to because of all the bodies. Again, I'm, I'm sorry, but could you imagine just the foul odor? That, 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 that's a, that will kill any tourist destination right out of the chute, right? So, it will obstruct travelers. There are going to be so many bodies, so many weapons, and they're going to have to deal with all of that. And that's what I think 
this is describing for us is just the logistics of it. Listen to verse 12, for seven months the house of Israel will be burying them, and here's why, in order to cleanse the land. This is important, it's an important detail. Indeed, verse 13, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. There it is again, and we're going to see it again. This is all done for the glory of God. They, verse 14, will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party. How detailed is this? We've got a massive problem here, man. We've got all these bodies. What are we going to do with it? We've got to hire people. We've got to employ people. We need a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground. And here it is again, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. It's going to take them just seven months just to complete the search for all of the bodies. The search party, verse 15, will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it, till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamun Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamunor. Thus they shall cleanse the land. Okay. How you doing? Are we okay still? Okay. What's going on here? Well, <laughs> think it through. God deals this decisive, I mean, no question that it was God who did it. Because only God could do what is being done here against not just all odds, but impossible odds. This is this is inexplicable, absent God being the one who does it. So now we've got the aftermath again. We've got all of these bodies, and they're going to hire all of these people to deal with all of these bodies. They've got to search the land. They've got to mark the body, the bones, the carcasses, and they're not going to touch it. Instead, they're going to put a marker by it to identify it, that it's been located by the search party that we hired and employed. And we're going to wait for the professionals to come and complete the burial appropriately. Now, there are some who believe that this comports with Zechariah chapter 14. I want to say it's about verse 12. I could be mistaken. Um, where we have this, again, graphic description of a prophecy yet future where the eyeballs, I'm sorry, melt in the sockets of these people while they're standing in place. And some have taken this to mean that this is a nuclear radiation event. And they've taken that and connected that to this portion here in Ezekiel 39, and suggested that it's very possible that these searchers that they employed, the search party, 
don't touch it because of the radiation. They just mark it and wait for the hazmat guys <laughs> to come and take care of the rest of it. But wait a minute, that doesn't quite work either, because um, even if you're close in proximity to a body that has been exposed to nuclear radiation, you're, I'm not sticking around to put a marker in there. Are you? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm exposed now. I mean, I don't have to touch it to be exposed. I'm just close in proximity to it. And there's enough radiation on my meter to show me that, you know, this is a, a dangerous level. So I'm not sticking around. I found it. I did my job. You deal with it from here. I'm out of here, if it's nuclear. So that's, I can't quite get there. I think a better explanation and interpretation is this. In the Jewish culture, this body would be unclean. Cleanse the land from its uncleanness. You made that connection, right? Cleanse, clean, unclean. So they wouldn't touch it. They would bring those in to deal with it, bury it appropriately, accordingly to their Jewish customs concerning burial. And you don't touch a dead body. So I think that fits better. Do you? Have I just completely ruined your whole evening tonight with this? Am I overthinking it? I don't think I am. I know I do that. But I mean, I'm trying to think it through in terms of its interpretation. And the reason that that's important is because if it's something else, then I've just introduced now another hindrance to the fulfillment of this prophecy. If I've got another box now that has to be checked off. I mean, it could be, but I think a better explanation is that it is unclean. Now, verse 17. We okay so far? We can keep moving? Some of you are saying, please do keep moving. <laughs> and as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my, watch this, sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. Are you still okay? Hey, by the way, we're taking communion celebrating the body, flesh, and the blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Do you see the irony here? Usually the animal, the Lamb of God, in this case sacrificed, and we partake. But this is reversed. It's man being sacrificed, and the animals, instead of being a sacrifice, are partaking of the, is this, am I 
taking it too far? I mean, this so God, so <laughs> I'm sorry for seeing the humor in this, but God is like, you know, you guys, I mean, you're working, you know, day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to bury all these bodies. How about I just invite all of the birds to come and eat them so you don't have to deal with them? It's kind of like that. Uh, that'll, that'll, that'll give you a day off, maybe at least. You won't have to deal. They're going to. And it's a sacrifice in the sense that it's been sanctified by God as such, which is again what we're going to celebrate tonight with the communion. Verse 18, You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full. By the way, parenthetically, let me say, did you know that the most delicious part of that steak is the fat? Shouldn't have told you that. It's also the most tender. Anyway, I just, if you're hungry, that was for you. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk. We were doing very good with the fat at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. This is probably as good of a time as any, just by way of a friendly reminder. Please, please, please don't try to allegorize this spiritualize this. This is literally going to happen. And here's why I say that and know that. There's a reference in the book of Revelation about the fowl of the air feasting on the carcasses of the bodies that lay open after the battle of Armageddon, which by the way, some have again misinterpreted Ezekiel 38 and 39 to be synonymous with the Battle of Armageddon. It just cannot be. I really still hold to the belief, though not dogmatic, that this prophecy of the Battle of Gog and Magog is like bookends with the Battle of Armageddon on each end of the seven-year tribulation. You see how I get there? So you've got Ezekiel 38, Battle of Gog, Magog, the bookend at the front, and the Battle of Armageddon, the bookend on the end. And by the way, the Battle of Armageddon is not really technically a battle. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like the Lord just kind of says, yeah, no, uh -uh. and then it's over. So, um, I'm sorry for those of you that are Bruce Willis fans. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I'm sorry for the movie reference, but didn't they have a movie titled Armageddon? And it was about, what was it about, an asteroid or something? Or, come on, really? Anyway, okay. Uh, this is the Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Jezreel 
where God is going to gather all of the nations into this valley for that final battle, the battle of Armageddon. Okay. Are we okay? Okay. Wow, we're not okay, because nobody said anything. <laughs> did, I, did, I just, did I just do it? Did I just really do it this time? We're okay, right? That was a little better. Let's move on. Verse 21. I will set, and here it is again, please don't miss it, my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid on them. So, verse 22, the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Now stay with me. Verse 23, the Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. This until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. There's a blindness now on Israel. And God has hid His face from them, but that time is coming to an end. And that will be during the seven-year tribulation, which the purpose of the tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. And this is why it is that many get into big trouble. I mean, they're in big trouble with God. <laughs> when they start playing around and messing with this delineation between the church and Israel. Because if you're going to be wishy-washy and play fast and loose and play games, with the blurring of the line, making this the distinction between the church and Israel. And God forbid you cross that line into replacement theology, where the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people, God's elect. Do you realize that there's no way you can hold to that false doctrine of demons without throwing the church into the seven-year tribulation, which is why they completely, wrongly, sadly dismantle the sound doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. You know how it is, and I didn't mean to go off, but maybe I need to. <laughs> I know I want to. <laughs> Just hear me out. Let me have this one. You know how it is when you lie, you're committed. Right? No, no. So I use this example from when I was a kid, and my mom would give me $3.75 in quarters from the cash register in the cafe that we owned. And she would say, <laughs> just like that, go get the haircut. Well, she hands me these quarters. And those quarters, go in pinball machines. <laughs> that was their final destiny. Now, 
I took those quarters, and I surely intended to get a haircut. But there was a voice speaking to me. Wow, that's a lot of pinball. Why don't you just go play pinball with all those quarters instead, and then lie to your mom about getting a haircut? Now this is back when I was a kid, and I had hair so to cut. So <laughs> that ship has sailed long ago. So I would take my Brillo pad for a hair, and I would try to pat it down to make it look like I got my hair cut. You know, kind of like I'm doing now. I don't want to go back into that. Just I did not get a haircut, because if I did, it would only be one hair that would be cut. I just, I'm over it. I just started to comb it back, and so it saves me a lot of time. So that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Back to my example. So now I've enjoyed thoroughly. Sin is pleasurable for a season, for a moment. But in the end, <laughs> it's very better when reality sets in, and I'm walking home, and I'm realizing, oh my goodness, my mom's going to ask me if I got a haircut, and I'm going to have to lie, because I didn't get a haircut. So sure enough, I walk in the door. She's looking at me going like, did you get a haircut? Yeah. Okay, there's lie number one. I'm committed now. I'm in for the long term. This is a long-term commitment, because I got to keep the lie alive. How am I going to keep the lie alive? I got to keep lying, because if I don't keep lying, the lie is going to be alive. So now she's going to say, well, who cut it? Uh-oh, here comes lie number two. Um, oh, you know, that, that one barber. Oh. What time did you get your hair cut? Lie number three. Man, I'm in. I'm in this thing. And I'm, I'm carrying it through for as long as I can. Is there a point here? Yes, there is. You ready for it? Wait for it. When you buy the lie of a false doctrine, you're committed. Example? You buy the lie that the rapture is not before the seven-year tribulation. Now you're committed. What are you going to do with the church? If, if it's not before the tribulation, now you've got the church in the tribulation. Here comes lie number two. And now you've got another huge problem. Because what are you going to do about the 144,000? Oh, we'll just spiritualize it. Okay, you dodge that bullet. What about this? Lie, lie, lie. And this is why they end up with the most, ah, I'm going to be careful what words I use here, but I mean ludicrous, absurd, you know, twisting of the Scriptures to keep that lie alive. So now the church is in the tribulation. And so now we're going to be beheaded, as Paul would say, therefore encourage one another with these words. <laughs> That's cruel. And wait a minute, I thought I was, as the body of Christ, part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. 
Well, the bridegroom's going to let the bride get all bust up before the wedding. That, what are you going to do with that? Well, you've got to prove yourself. Well, now you've got a bigger problem. You know why? Because now that's works. I've got to earn it. I'm saved by grace. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What are you going to do with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Well, yeah, you don't get the Did you get the point? Okay. I don't know where that came from, but I'm sure I'll figure something out to justify it. Oh, I know, it had to do with <laughs> God is not through with the Jew. Oh, He's hiding His face from them now. But there is coming a time soon and very soon when the church is taken out of the way that God shifts the entirety of His focus for that final seven years, Daniel's 70th week. That's another one. I think it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Wasn't Jacob Israel? Oh, so now it's the time of the church's trouble? <laughs> wow, that's a, you're talking about a scriptural pretzel that you've twisted everything into. You can't do that. Stop. Just please stop. Stop doing that. Oh, and then, oh, I shouldn't have. Then you get into New Apostolic Reformation, Kingdom Now Theology, Dominion Theology. I talked about it on Sunday. I didn't talk about it. I yelled and screamed about it. You know, there's something about being a little bit angry with the world and the devil and the flesh. That's a righteous anger. And I have to confess that I'm just a little bit angry, because it's just not right. It's not right. And many are being led astray. We're, we're there in Jude about these men creeping in unaware, and leading and deceiving many to deny Jesus, our Sovereign and Lord. And they, they, they're so subtle and smooth. And they prey on gullible Christians who don't know the Word of God. And they're not grounded in sound doctrine, rightly dividing the Word of truth. That's low-hanging fruit for these deceivers that that creep in. And I just, it, it makes me angry. Okay? All right. Are you angry too? Come on, make you angry too. <laughs> A righteous anger, of course. Okay, we finished verse 23, right? Verse 24, according to their uncleanness, and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them, and hidden my face from them. Therefore, verse 25, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob. Boom, mic drop right there. 
Israel, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. After verse 26, they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land, and no one made them afraid. This is a prophecy yet future about the whole house of Israel, as we're told in Romans, coming to salvation. At the end of the seven year tribulation, it is the Jew who calls upon the one whom they have pierced to come. And Satan knows that, by the way, which is the reason why from beginning with Cain and Abel, who we talked about in Jude, has sought to eliminate, exterminate the Jewish people, the seed of the woman. We're going to talk a little bit more about that on Sunday. He's tried to thwart the first coming of the Savior of the world, the seed of the woman. And when he failed, of course, he would fail. He's now going to regroup and try to thwart the second coming of the Savior of the world. How's he going to try to do that? Because if there's no Israel, there's no Savior. Because that's why he comes and for whom he comes. So if he can thwart eliminate the Jews, he can thwart the coming of the Savior of the world, which he's been quite literally hell bent on doing from the beginning, starting in Genesis. And you just fast forward throughout Scripture. You even go to the last century with Hitler. This demonic, satanic attempt to destroy and annihilate all of the Jewish people, because if there were a possibility that it could succeed, you could in so doing stop the coming of Jesus Christ for Israel. Not the church. Not the church. We're out of here. Before the seven, we have to be. We have to get, be out of the way. <laughs> So he takes his bride before the seven year tribulation, and then all of Israel comes to salvation in the seven year tribulation. Verse 27, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then, verse 28, they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land, and left none of them captive any longer. And here it is, I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. This is going to sort of gel into our celebration of communion this way. This is what God does in dealing with our enemies. Notice Israel had nothing to do with this. They brought nothing to the table of the victory that only God wrought and brought. Are you with me? 
So in other words, and repeatedly throughout the prophecy, we're told that I did this for my glory, so that everybody would look at you and go, oh, because they're locals. <laughs> I mean, wow, what God is this that you serve this God of Israel, who is like unto your God? He is God. That was the whole purpose. I'm not only going to do this, I'm going to do this in such a way so that there's no mistake, it's unmistakable that it was me who did it. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Now think about this in its context, because it's given to Ezekiel while he's still in Babylon, in Tel Aviv, and he's prophesying about this. Now you're captive there in Babylon as a Jew, and Ezekiel prophesies about what God's going to do in restoring His people, and no longer hiding His face from His people, and bringing salvation to His people, and defeating the enemies of His people. Are you going to be encouraged? Are you going to have hope that God's going to do that for you? Let's bring it into a more personal application. You've got somebody right now in your life that you would like for God to do an Ezekiel 38 and 39 on. Come on. It's okay. You don't have to, I won't look at you. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. You know what I'm talking about. And, and God's keeping a record of everything, because you're my people. And they're plotting against you. And they're going to attack you. And they're going to post stuff on social media about you. And they're going to try to take from you all of the above. And, and God rushes in, deals a decisive blow. Thank you, Lord. Wow. Well, I did it for my glory, because I did it in such a way that everyone knows that it was me who did it because only I could do that. I mean, they were coming against you, talking stink about you, doing that to you, <laughs> and I took care of it. I just took care of it for you. Don't try to help me out. I'll take care of it. Yeah, but you know, that what they, yeah, I, I know all about it. Wait till you see what I've got planned. I've actually got a burial. Uh, plot for all of them, for me, for my glory. But I'm going to do it. I'll take care of the enemies, all of your enemies. And I'm going to bring you back out from the enemy's land. And I will be hallowed in your sight, in the sight of all of those enemy nations. Because make no mistake about it, all of these nations are looking at Israel going, um, we're not your enemies anymore. Can we be your friends? Can we, will you accept our friend request, please? Because we don't want to be your enemy, because we see what God does to your enemies. And so too does God do this to the enemy. You just wait. 
God will have the final word. Don't take matters into your own hands. I know that is so much easier said than done. But don't try to, hey God, let's just get this show on the road. I got a few ideas. We always make suggestions. You know, we could just, we could just maybe torch them, you know, just like a preview of coming attractions, and then just, you know, send that fire down and burn them. And then, anyway, that's bad, isn't it? <laughs> Come on, I don't think that you, I know you think about those kinds of things. And God's like, no, I got this. I got this. I'm going to do it my way and my time and for my glory. So just wait and watch and you'll see. All right. So how does that tie into communion? I have no idea. <laughs> Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. I actually had it, but I lost it. When the hour had come, he sat down and he's speaking of Jesus the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He's told him as much. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's speaking, by the way, of the wedding feast of the Lamb, which we will be partaking together with Him as His bride by His side. What we're celebrating tonight, can you wrap your mind around this? And he says it no less than two times, that I fervently desire, some translations render it, I eagerly await, I can't wait, until what we're going to do here is fulfilled. The next time we do this will be when it's fulfilled in my kingdom, the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So for those of you that are here, if you'll just take and peel back the packaging at the top and hold on to the bread for just a moment. These are symbols that represent, commemorate, celebrate both the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The bread, the body, broken for us instead of us. His body was broken, not his bones, by the way. That would have disqualified him as the Passover lamb, fulfilling the Passover prophecy. Because in the Exodus, the lamb could not have any of its bones broken. It had to be without spot, without blemish, without sin. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is bread without yeast, because yeast is a type of sin. The bread in the Feast of Unleavened Bread had no leaven, because there was no sin in His body. He was found to be sinless, without spot, without blemish. After being on trial for four days, by the way, which is the amount of time that the lamb was inspected before it was slit, the skin was broken, and the blood then came out. 
when they sacrificed that lamb at the exact hour that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed on that cross. So that's what we're celebrating tonight, is the body of Jesus Christ broken for us. So would you partake with me? Lord, thank You. Thank You for this. Thank You for giving us this to do in remembrance of You. We do remember what You did for us, in that You died for us, that Your body was broken for us as the perfect sacrifice the sacrificial Lamb of God for the sins of all mankind, once and for all. So Lord, we've partaken of the bread, as You said, and we do so like You as we eagerly await for that day when we partake with You when this is fulfilled. And Lord, we too can't wait. So thank You, Lord. Luke goes on to write, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So again, those of you here, just peel back the remainder and hold on to it for a moment. Again, a symbol, but not to be understated or underestimated, because it is a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ shed in our stead for the remission of sin. It's the cleansing of sin, not the covering, kofar in the Hebrew, the Old Covenant. This is the blood of the New Covenant. The New Covenant does not cover, it removes. Our sins, all of our sins, as far as the East is from the West, though they be as scarlet, He makes them white as snow and remembers them no more. Before we partake, I just want to say, and I, I want to be careful how I say it, so that I'm not misunderstood. I want you to hear my heart here. All of us, every single one of us, have brought to this Bible study tonight sin, for which we are forgiven. That's a given forgiven, that's a given. That's pretty good. You need to write a song about that, Capono. That's a given. We're forgiven. But it's even more than that. We have been cleansed. It has been washed as white as snow. It has been removed. We have been purified. If we, 1 John 1, 9, confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us, that's a given, and cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. That's how powerful the blood of the new covenant of Jesus Christ shed for us is. Now, as we partake, please allow the Holy Spirit to just bless that to your heart, that all of your sins as ugly and awful as they are, 
as scarlet in color as they are, have been made white as snow because of the blood. Now, let's partake. Thank you, Lord. Why don't you go ahead and stand, Capono? Come on up. We'll close in prayer and song. Father in heaven, there are really, truly no words to adequately express how grateful we are to You. What love You must have for us, no greater love hath any man that he would lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners, no less in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus, you died for us. Lord, I just pray that what we did here tonight in partaking together of communion, it, it, it won't just be rote or just a formality or a routine that we do just because it's what we do, but rather that we would take with us home this gift that you have given us of eternal life, that you paid for in full with your broken body and your shed blood. So Lord, will you also, as only you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring to our remembrance of You, that soon we'll be doing this with You. Because I know that's going to bring a lot of hope and encouragement to many who are battle weary, really struggling with the trials of life that are just beating us up. <laughs> and Lord, the beating up is really the prelude to the catching up when we're taken up. So Lord, come quickly, we pray. Maranatha, in Jesus' name. Amen.